Hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thanks for tuning in today. You're going to hear my conversation with Ryan Culp. This was a good one. Interesting talk that I had with Ryan. I kind of stumbled upon his stuff when I was Googling the other day as I'm trying to learn to code this year and learn to code my own products. And he wrote a really great article all about that that really caught my attention. And once I started reading that, I started digging into everything that he's been working on. And man, he's working on a lot of stuff. So he's the co-founder of FOMO, which is like a social proof app kind of thing. Pretty cool, growing really fast this year, among many other interesting side projects, if you will. And so, yeah, it was just a really kind of far reaching conversation with, with Ryan. We covered a lot of stuff from how to like learn to code, his story of how he figured it out on his own and, and how he just gets into all these random projects and business ideas and launches them quickly and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Culp. Enjoy. All right. I'm here today with Ryan Culp. Ryan, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, great to connect with you. I was just telling you, you know, right before this recording, I just, you know, it was one of those things I stumbled across you on the internet a couple of weeks ago. I was Googling, you know, about how to learn to code, you know, learning to code my own software products. You wrote a really great blog post on that. I think you titled it the best post ever written on learning to code. <laughs> um, and it was one of the best ones I've read. So I was like, all right, I got to I got to contact this guy because after I read that, I started digging into everything else that you're working on from music to running, it looks like a thousand different tech startups to blogging and all this different stuff. And you've got like a private equity firm, like, all right, we got to figure all this stuff out here. <laughs> so why don't you tell me, like, how do you describe, what are you, what are you working on today? Sure. Well, when I go to events, I usually just say, uh, I drink iced coffee and hang out because uh, that's, that's really what I aspire to do. And all the stuff that I actually do is just me figuring out a way to get to that point. So, you know, day to day, I, I wake up, I've been reading books in the morning for the last few months. That really helps because otherwise my, I guess my tasks or the things that are expected of me because I've overcommitted myself for the past five years are pretty numerous. And so my main jam, I should say, I could call it my day job. I'm the founder of FOMO and FOMO is a SaaS marketing tool. We work mostly with e-commerce companies and we help them increase their conversions. So it's a conversion rate optimization platform. And uh, we're going a lot of different directions with that this quarter and this summer with, uh, with the new ad network and some other things. But that's really my main thing. I don't want to use the phrase, it's my baby. But that's, if I had to say, you know, what am I up to? What am I hacking on? It's, it's FOMO. But then, you know, kind of nights and weekends, lunch breaks, while I'm walking home from the gym, et cetera, I have a few side projects that do anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand to $22,000 a month in recurring revenue. They're also SaaS products, sometimes marketing, sometimes related to flowers. There's an e-commerce store in there that sells kids toys, kind of all across the board. And so it's been really interesting over the last year that I've been doing, I guess, kind of multiple things at once is trying to always take a step back and look for the patterns and the common denominators between marketing and growth and how to think about leadership and funding and bootstrapping versus, you know, what could you do with external capital and trying to put it all together and, and make it fit into this um, square around peg hole, given that I'm doing multiple things and they all need their own special care. But how can I be both prescriptive, but also use frameworks and mental models to grow this? And so that's kind of been the crux of what I've been doing day to day. And mostly what that looks like is I'd say 30, 40% coding, 20, 30% marketing, 20, 30% sales. And then kind of, you know, working with my team and customer support is kind of my day to day. 
just about seven days a week, hopefully not forever, but probably for the next year or two until we get some of these things, you know, more off the ground. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I just looking at what you put out there through your website and all these different projects, it, you know, what struck me is I've always been fascinated with people who are growing like a portfolio, a number of different businesses, you know, mostly bootstrapped, throwing a lot of stuff out there and actually running a lot of stuff at the same time, because there are so many people out there who just focus on one big thing for five years, like at a time before moving on to something else. And I've always been someone who, you know, has my hands in a couple of different things. And so I, I think that's really interesting. We'll, we'll definitely dig into that. I'm, I'm curious, like, so you mentioned that you have a team working with you, but you're working on a lot of like nights and weekends, kind of solo projects out of like between FOMO. Are you like the solo founder of FOMO or do you have partners or a team on that? Or how does that work out? Sort of operationally? Yes. I'm the sole founder. I Actually, uh, FOMO started because we acquired a Shopify app called Notify in early 2016. And I did that acquisition with my buddy, Justin Mares, and he's very busy with some other stuff. And so end of 2016, we kind of said, hey, you focus on those other businesses. I'm going to focus on FOMO. And um, now we're still just great friends. We hang out, we drink, we do sushi, that kind of thing. And obviously, we talk shop about how we can help each other. But day to day, I'm the acting founder, and both of us are still incentivized you know, on the back end. And then our team is around 11 or 12. We just hired two new full-time folks building our first business team, actually. So right now, up until, I guess, two weeks ago, the entire team was um, all engineers and our designer, who as well is a developer. And uh, that was great. Even our two support folks are support engineers, right? So they're pushing code, hacking, doing customizations for clients. We felt that was really important. But I was the only kind of guy on the, the business team, if you even want to call it that. Um, and that's with maybe, what, 20, 30% of my time that I could do businessy things, right? Because as founder, you're doing a lot of stuff like, I don't know, accounting and looking at spreadsheets and just stuff that doesn't seem to have anything to do with your company's vision. And so, yeah, so now we have a marketing and a salesperson coming on board beginning mid-May and really looking forward to that to see what that can do to our growth and maybe my day-to-day -day stress levels. But yeah, so acting founder of, of FOMO. And, and pretty much the same with um, some of these other projects. It's pretty much just me on a couple of them. My fiance is also involved on in a couple of them. And then we have some other ad hoc teams on a couple of them. So <laughs> I don't know, a little messy maybe, but uh, it all makes sense in my head. I like it. All right. So, you know, today we're definitely going to dive into how you go about or why you bought that business and some of the other things that you picked up. We'll talk a little bit more about FOMO itself. That seems to be like your main focus. But I want to start off just where I found you, which was learning to code, right? It, what resonated with me about that post was that it, it sounded like, like you come from somewhat of a similar background as I do, or you, you come at the, the goal of learning to code from the same standpoint that I do, which is like, it sounded like you wanted to build your own products, not like you want to learn to code to get a job as a developer or something like that. You don't want to become the, you know, the most technically advanced programmer in the world. It's a means to an end right? Can you talk a bit about that? Like what led you to decide, okay, it's time to actually teach myself to code a software app from start to finish? Sure. So, I mean, just in general, my, my career, it's been what, only six years. I'm 28. I started, you know, after college as, as my, my first full-time role and it happened to be in tech and then I happened to kind of enjoy it. So then I did another job in tech and then, then I felt, okay, I guess I'm in the startup scene. You know, I keep looking, um, this is working out. I get to wear my t-shirts and my vans. So I'll just keep showing up. And um, generally, I'm a very impatient person. And so my roles were marketing. 
And the first marketing job is kind of glorified marketing. It's kind of customer support, you know, maybe sending some newsletters through MailChimp and A-B testing subject lines, but nothing crazy, something I think a college could do. A college could probably do a better job than I did, frankly. And my next job was a little more involved, kind of maybe oversold my abilities and then had to Google around, you know, how do you SEO? How do you AdWords? How do you do this? And that's, I think, a lot of marketers, you know, learn anything really in, in digital anyway. And um, throughout that process, and again, before I got into tech, I've just been really impatient. I want to do something. I want to do it right now. I want something, whether it's like I want to purchase something, I'd rather go to Best Buy and buy it now than save $300 and get on Amazon in three days. I just don't care. I totally relate to that. You know, I let these, I let these interests consume me. They become my personal identity. And maybe it's only for an hour if it's a task that only takes an hour. You know, if it's like, I really want pizza right now, so I'm going to go to the only Little Caesars in Manhattan, which happens to be at Harlem at like one-tenth because I really like the commercial I just saw on Hulu for bacon-wrapped crust, then I'm going to do that at 3 a.m. And, and I've literally done exactly that, so I'm not really making this up. I just get consumed and I identify with my internal, I guess, desires. And sometimes those are really silly, right, like pizza, but sometimes I think they're a little more lucrative or useful for my career. And so that's how I got into coding, really, is that I was a marketer and I had, you know, try to come up with wacky ideas. You try to come up constantly with lean ideas that will allow you to get the attention of relevant audiences for as few resources as possible, right? And so, you know, it's easy to generate traffic if you have money, right? Anybody in a big company, that's why I would probably never hire someone from a big company, a marketing role anyway, from a big company. It's because their first day, they're just going to say, well, what's my budget, right? They're only powerful to the degree that their budget allows them to buy clicks and demand attention from people with dollars. But where it gets really interesting and a lot more difficult is how do you get people's attention without paying for it, you know? How do you get people's attention without blowing up their Facebook timelines, without showing up the top of every ad result for, you know, Google search? And um, that's where it gets really interesting. So that's the types of marketers I try to recruit, and that's the type of marketer I try to become. And so as I got into doing some wacky stuff, and I, I don't really ever call myself a growth hacker, but other people give that title for it. Well, I guess what you're getting at there is like build something interesting and noteworthy that get people talking without having to run ads to it, basically. That's right. And a lot of times where I think the growth hacker thing has some merit, the term, is that what it's really doing is it's a little bit conflation, but what it's really doing is combining two disciplines. This engineering is marketing, this concept that you can build something once, right? Maybe that's writing code and then it scales infinitely. So if you're a marketer, you could, for example, offer, um, you know, I don't know, free headlines, right? Send me your URL through this Google form and I will write back five headlines that might work for your homepage. And then if you like that, you can hire me, right? But that's really unscalable. And we think about scale a lot in tech. So if you're a marketer and you have those same concepts of how can I add value to someone and give them like a free headline equivalency, but not physically have to personally make all these headlines, you might build something like a cold email generator, right? So I built this cold email generator tool that lets you pick a bunch of drop downs and choose who you're targeting, you know, CEOs versus managers and whatever, pick some kind of variables, and then boom, it spits out a five touch cold email campaign. And so that's just an angel marketing concept, right? Give, or as Gary Vee says, give value, give value, give value, and then ask for their business. But when you add code to it, or when you couple it with code or, or quote unquote automation, maybe it's not code, maybe it's just a string of seven Zapier apps. Suddenly now you can help a lot of people really quickly. And then when you multiply that traffic, that engagement, you know, I've helped 30 people instead of giving two people headlines times multiply it by some conversion rate. And that equals your, your business health, your revenue or whatever. Suddenly marketers are going, huh, wait a second, I'm putting two and two together here. 
I already know how to maybe craft messages. I already know how to get people's attention, but I can't really scale it, right? So what is the closest thing, the closest kind of tangible personification we have in technology to scale? It's code, right? It's buttons that do a certain thing every single time you click them. And so that's how I got into coding was I was constantly creating things that I wanted a, a developer on my team to do. Hey, you know, if I could pass in like a query param, first name equals Ryan, and then go to this customer for a landing page. And when someone lands on the referral page, it would say, welcome, Ryan, click here. And then our conversion rates, you know, I could come up with the ideas conceptually. And I, I think I was okay as a product person to wireframe them and, and literally mock it up and try to understand some vernacular. What are query params? What are all these things? But I couldn't do it. And, you know, executions, it's kind of like that 90-10 thing, you know, as they say about film. The first 90% takes 90% of the time. The last 10% takes 90% of the time. And that's how technology is as well. You have these great marketing ideas and you have to execute them. Did you do that? Like before you started to learn to code, like did you actually try to hire developers to build out your ideas? Because like that's, that's something that like I've done for years. I've become pretty good at designing and wireframing and writing up specs and hiring people for various roles and outsourcing and managing people. But then still it's like, I got to wait for it to get done or I, or I got to wait until I have the cash flow to, to invest in a big development project or something like that. And, it's, and, and it was that impatience of, of being like, I know all the pieces. I just want to design it conceptualize it, build it, launch it. Like, how did you make that transition from like not knowing any code to like deciding to code it yourself instead of outsourcing? Sure. Well, some of it, some of it, I guess, thankfully for me, not so much for past employers was um, someone else's expense, right? So the first couple of years I was in tech, I had a full-time job. I also did some freelancing on the side and yada, 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 but you know, all of 2013, all of 2014, those were my first two years in the job market. I graduated college in 2012. I had a full-time job. We had some developers. We had maybe a little bit of budget and I had an email address. So I could kind of pitch ideas and see what happens. So I would say the first 10 or 20 or even 30 instances of here's a specific pointed marketing idea or marketing goal. And here are the development requirements to help achieve the goal. I would say the first 10 to 30 of those instances, it wasn't really on my dime when it maybe didn't go very well or didn't go as planned or went way over scope. Maybe it worked, but you know, immediately there were security issues. Maybe it worked, but immediately there were, I don't know, some other type of costs or opportunity costs, right? And so that was great. <laughs> Essentially, my employers invested in me. I don't know if they thought of it that way at the time, and, and I'm very grateful to them, right? So all these companies I'm talking about, I'm hanging out and drinking and, you know, with all these guys and these founders all the time. So I hope they listen to this. And then I would say the next few, I kind of sharpened a few edges in terms of like, what is a spec and what is scope creep and some of these big ideas, because that's what kills a lot of tech projects. You run out of money, you run out of funding, the scope goes crazy. You suddenly need to re-architect like the data model halfway through, or you didn't account for something. And so I got the kind of education by doing on someone else's time. Then around 2014, 2015 was when I started to venture out on my own and say, okay, here's an idea. Let me go on, you know, Odesk at the time before it was Upwork combined. And let me find someone and interview them. But I still wasn't very good at it. I mean, I found some people, even Americans, even I found local New Yorkers who could come over and I would feed them beer and pizza once a week and they would kind of hack on my ideas. I gave them equity. I did what I could, but you know, I wasn't making much money. I really couldn't do much. They had to be really intrinsically motivated. And I think I found that I was better at intrinsically motivating people than actually giving them technical direction. And it all kind of came to a point when I think summer 2015, I was working with a guy who was sort of my co-founder and he was our technical person. He was a very good engineer. 
And I kind of got on his case about something that we were working on not being done. We were working on a Shopify app and we were working on a few widgets and tools that to me just sounded like, yeah, once we launch, we'll get all these users and we'll sell them for 10 bucks a month. It'll be great. And he basically screamed at me and said, Ryan, you don't know anything about technology. And there were some expletives in there or whatever, but that kind of bummed me out. But I thought to myself, well, what if this, what words out of what he's saying is actually true, right? Here I am, I was what, 25 at the time. And I've been in tech three years. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, probably, you know, I'll probably stay in tech for my career. I'm not going to suddenly go to Deloitte or do something like that. And what out of what he's saying is true. You know, I, I can talk about products and interfaces. And I know some of the buzzwords. And I know some of the acronyms. But there's something to what he's saying that that is actually uh, unfortunately accurate. You know, I don't really know what technology is. I don't really know what programming languages are. I don't know what framework. How is it built? Why is one thing more complex than another? Yeah, yeah. why does and I don't, I don't know these things and it got hazy and it felt a little bit maybe insecure, a little bit inadequate, more just as a personal thing, you know, not, not towards my, my colleagues, but just, man, if I'm going to stake a claim in this industry for 40 years and if I want to do something important, even mildly important, I have to know what I'm talking about. And so that was when end of 2015, I packed everything, which was like a book bag. And I went to Thailand for a while and kind of dedicated myself to, to learning to code. It wasn't just learning to code. You, you actually went out and lived somewhere else. Was that, I mean, obviously it's to travel and everything, but was it also like living expense to like kind of dedicate yourself to like learning mode for a little while? And, and what were your first steps to start to learn to code? Where'd you go first? Well, the motivations and the logistics were, were all of the above. I mean, I've been living in New York since 2013 and, you know, it's pretty expensive here. I didn't really want to work full time and try to learn to code because I had kind of done that before. You know, I had done like a couple nights and weekends. Let me go in Code Academy and I'll do an hour a day and I'll do two hours a day. And two days later, you're learning how to iterate through an array of grocery items. And you're saying, why the hell am I learning how to iterate through an array of grocery items? And it doesn't, looping, all these things, they don't make any sense. And so, um, so the Thailand thing was really nice because I was able to Airbnb my apartment. And I think I made like $6,700 that month uh, for what, the first month while I was gone, Airbnb in the apartment. My rent was like 2100 Meanwhile, my apartment in Thailand was $310 all-inclusive. So that's cable, electric, all the, uh, furniture. It's in a high-rise. Kind of a joke. And then meals are two to five bucks. So you're able to actually, you know, make a profit um, <laughs> by not working if you do this kind of currency speculation hack. And so that was what I did was to relieve myself of distractions and also just not have friends, you know? I, it was the first time in my life I'd ever done something solo. I'd never traveled alone. I'd never been without people who spoke English for more than a day or two. Or even if I had, it was like going with five friends to Mexico or something. Yeah, Thailand is, is particularly tough. I mean, there's really very little English speaking there. Yeah, and so I, didn't, I just didn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you there? I was only there 35, 40 days. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really do anything cool. I didn't see anything interesting. I took like three photos on Instagram and then I deleted my Instagram account. So, you know, I have nothing to show for it other than, well, other than everything, right? My whole life changed from that trip, even though I don't recall anything specific about, you know, about the Thailand experience. But it just, you know, gave me the time, peace of mind to go heads down and get over that learning curve. That is kind of what I try to write about and talk about on my blog and elsewhere is um, there's a learning curve to programming like anything else. But for some reason, whether it's programming or I think guitar is also another contender for this, people give up when they're just so close to getting over that hump. And then they think they make the mistake that they can't do it. And that's, that's kind of heartbreaking to me. And so anyway, I can communicate the message that that's not the case. Um, I, I do. Yeah. So what were the first kind of things that you really dove into 
in terms of code? I mean, you, you know, you talked about like things like Code Academy and taking some like basic tutorials and stuff, but like what, what was like the tech stack that you decided like, I'm going to learn Rails or I'm going to learn this or that? Like, what, what was that? You know, that, I think that's also a really hard part with starting, knowing what to do first, you know, what languages, what frameworks. If you go on Quora, which was a place I went to, I frequented a lot back then, you know, the answers are just so contradictory. And they're from all really smart people. So then you realize, wow, well, all advice is true. And I'm actually publishing a post uh, after our chat today about how all startup advice is true. I'm calling it the advice paradox, you know. Someone can say you should be lean and ship things immediately and it can be embarrassing. And then someone else has a really great reason why you should stay stealth. And so the same applies to learning to code. And so what it's really about is, in a more meta sense, learning how to learn. And so I spent the first easily five to seven days in Thailand just Googling, you know, coding boot camps, physical boot camps, online boot camps, alternative to Code Academy, alternative to, you know, Linda, alternative to Treehouse. And I did a little bit on all of those platforms. Uh, none really gave me enough direction. And then I found this company called Tea Leaf, and they're now called Launch School, launchschool.com. And Tea Leaf had just a, I mean, I don't remember exactly what their homepage said, you know, but it basically communicated this idea that they didn't talk about programming languages, that's for sure. They didn't talk about like Ruby or Rails or, you know, whatever. They just said, hey, you know, we're going to learn the hard way. We're going to learn the slow way. And we're going to learn things that don't change. And all these things were so antithetical to the lingo and the verbiage and marketing speak, you know, that was on all of the other programming boot camps. And I thought, this is really interesting. Whatever they do, I don't really know. They might be teaching us basic, you know, or, or COBOL or something, but I have to learn more. So I got involved with them, joined their course. At the time, it was like 300 bucks flat. You just downloaded a bunch of videos and that was it. And now they've changed it to a SaaS model and all of that. I'm still actually a customer. I, I still pay every month for launch school and I, I log in a few times a month. I'm still not even a graduate. I, <laughs> I actually just started Rails about a month and a half ago. And so, you know, that was kind of how I got into it. And really just that time, you know, as, as they say in Shawshank Redemption, it's uh, geology is a study of time and pressure, you know, <laughs> just time and pressure. And I think that's, that's what it's like learning to code. You, you have to block out huge amounts of time, at least four hours plus at any given sit down to learn maybe a single concept. But if you do that, and if you can have a couple of those sit-downs a day for a couple months, explosive things happen. And I found that multiple times a day, my brain was just blinking with aha moments of something from, let's say, five days ago. Oh, that's, you know, and, and it was also not just something from a few days ago, but it was something that maybe had puzzled me for like the prior two years in tech. Like, oh, that's what a JSON response is from an API request. You know, just the most basic things. Like you hear people say these things all the time. And it's like, all right, now I actually get yes. why that works that way. Yeah. So what were like some of those first, not just aha moments, but like, like how soon into this process of daily se- like coding learning sessions before you were actually able to build like not just a basic function, but like a, a real application, maybe not a totally like production ready app, but like something that that's like pretty cool that you could like launch? Yes. I think within five to six weeks, and I could double check. I wrote a blog post about it, I think called Ryan Goes to Thailand. I'm sure if you search Ryan Goes to Thailand, I'd be the only one that shows up, hopefully. And I linked to each of the five, five or six or seven projects that I did while I was in Thailand. But I would say within four or five, six weeks, I was building and deploying production apps to a server, hooking it up to a .com, you know, branding it, that kind of thing. Obviously, these were basic. Obviously, I was using like Bootstrap versus you know anything I could have dreamed up my own on my own in terms of design. But I think my first project was called Is Palindrome, and I'd have to find out what the URL was. 
but I did buy a domain and it literally let you type in a palindrome and it would check if it was a palindrome and then give you a score and then there was a public leaderboard. And then I learned very quickly because I launched it on Product Hunt that people would just Google, you know, longest palindrome in the world, which is like 30,000 characters or something retarded and they would paste it in. And so then I was able to like, oh, you know, security and vulnerability and like, let me now blacklist. Let me pull Now I need to learn about that. <laughs> yeah. So now it's like it tries to give you like Easter eggs like, oh, that won't work, you know, if you try to type in the longest palindrome and I don't know, silly things like that. But that, that was the first app I did and I shipped it. And by putting it on Product Hunts was really interesting too, because you immediately get hundreds, if not thousands of people going to the website, signing up, you know, you're looking at your Google Analytics live view. And it goes back to what we talked about before, which was like, you know, I could have just offered someone, I don't know, a headline, you know, headlines as a marketer, and I could have gotten paid and I would eat forever. I would eat until the day I don't want to do it anymore. But if I could build a headline generator, then the ideas just explode. And so palindrome is palindrome was a, a silly, silly idea, but that's what got me into it. And yeah, I, I think I launched that before I even came back from Thailand. Nice. So like, was your goal with all this stuff, like to dive into code, to build these small projects, like was your goal or is your goal still to like be the, the lead developer architect of your products or is it to acquire other products that you could then go in and update the code yourself or is it to be able to better hire a development team like maybe all of the above? Like what, what are your goals for getting into code yourself? Well, getting into it, I was what, 25 at the time. The people I had been working with, the jobs, a lot of them had been coding since they were 11 or 12. And so I think that was another thing that kept me from getting into it. I mean, I guess I got into it early enough, right? I've now been doing it two and a half years, but... That's the thing. I mean, I'm in my 30s. That, that's what has held me back. Because like, I've, I've been like a professional level front end person for a while. But the back end, dev, I was always like, you know, there are people who've been at this for so many more years than me. It makes more sense for me to just hire them rather than do it myself. But now I'm coming around to the idea of like, you know what? I should just invest the time in becoming like full stack product, you know? Yes, I think so, because frankly, you know, we learn the term CRUD apps, right? Create, read, update, destroy. And it's almost depressing, but also encouraging and inspiring when you realize that the biggest products in the world are all just CRUD apps, you know? Anyone can build, you know, in a lot of these Rails 101 courses, for example, you learn to build a clone of Reddit. You build a clone of Airbnb, you build a clone of basically barnesandnoble.com, and you build a clone sort of like a Facebook quasi-Twitter, you know, a live news feed with photos and updates. And you, once you do that, you go, wait a second, you know, like obviously there's incredibly talented engineers working in all these companies and they're doing all kinds of stuff with algorithms and, you know, data science and blah, blah, blah. But they didn't get there doing that. They got there just <laughs> getting lots of users on a novel idea that was a reverse chronological feed. And then they had to iterate from there to keep the server from exploding and, you know, pagination. But all those things are so iterative that by the time you have to tackle those challenges, it's not really that overwhelming, you know, just about every technical challenge, if you boil it down to a small enough product, has already been solved. You know, you want to do amazing fuzzy search. Well, you know, there's Elasticsearch, there's open source libraries, and now there's Algolia, which is fuzzy search as a service. I mean, That's the thing today, like there are so many frameworks and open source projects and things that you can, you know, string together. If you know the basics of coding, you know how to put these pieces together. You don't have to build everything totally from scratch. Exactly. And look, there are people doing things that I will never probably be able to do. Let's say like you're working in uh, VR or you work at Tesla, right? I'm reading Elon Musk's biography right now and autobiography. And you know, some of those, some of these engineers are so talented, but the thing is, is I don't ever want to be them, you know? 
I don't get a kick out of writing code that begets the need to write more complicated code. I like making money. I like adding value to people. And frankly, we're still in this amazing Wild West period right now in 2018 where you can create an app that simply creates and destroys records in a database with a nice, you know, a usability, a usable interface. And that is enough to add incredible value to people's lives. Look at every CRM. A CRM is an amazing example of this. You know, Salesforce is a multi-billion dollar company. It is literally names and emails strung together. It's a spreadsheet and a UI. That's, you know. And it looks terrible. Right. <laughs> like Salesforce is ugly. But the thing is, is that's still, that's still a zero to one for the average use case. There's a lot of use cases where all people really need is a certain way to add names and in, in whatever into a database. And, and that's really encouraging to people getting started in programming. And if you look at the best engineering town in the world, and you will never be like them. It's like, that's just, that's just not the point. Depending on your goals, you know, if your goals are passive income, if your goal is to not have a boss, if your goal is, et cetera, then none of that matters. So let's talk about this private micro equity fund, MK.XYZ. What is it? How did it start? Tell us about it. Sure. So I guess I'll, I'll kind of blur the two together. There's MK.XYZ and there's ForkEquity.com. MK is with Justin, who I acquired Notify with that Shopify app in 2016 and turn into FOMO. And then Fork Equity right now is myself and um, my fiance Hideko. And we're growing a team for that on the, on the operational side. But what both of them are seeking to do is looking, is we're, we're looking for, I guess you could call them apps. I typically don't like to use the word app because it seems kind of minimizing to a founder's vision and what they're going for. App just seems so small. But you know, we look for platforms and tools that aren't venture fundable, and that probably aren't going to be scooped up by, you know, HubSpot or something anytime soon, right? They're not building something that's proprietary enough or dangerous enough to piss off or scare a company like Google into buying them. And they're also not attacking a big enough, I don't say attacking, you know, these lame business words, but they're also not approaching a big enough market where venture capitalists say, yeah, sure, you know, I'll believe your spreadsheet that shows that at month 36, you're worth a billion. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's actually why we named Fork. Fork is it's uh, for founders at a fork in the road. You know, if you're making, let's say, $15,000 a month on your solo software business, maybe it's SaaS and you charge, you know, 30 bucks a month and you have 5,000 customers. That's really great. You know, that's, I mean, you're top 1% of America and even being in America at all, you're top 1% or 5% of the planet, right? But if you're making 15 grand a month and it's just you, you're working pretty hard, you're pushing some features, you're doing some marketing, you're doing some customer support. If you want to grow that, and let's assume that you've hit some sort of plateau, you know, you've got things that work for you, you're growing maybe linearly single digits, but you also have churn that's in the single digits. So pretty much you're like 15K and in three months you might be 16,000. There's a lot of companies like that, a lot of companies. They're supporting families, they're doing great. And as far as I'm concerned, the founders of those companies are, are winning in every way. But if they're really ambitious and they want to have a company one day that does 50 grand a month or 100 grand a month or much more than that, they have... A couple options. They can maybe raise venture funding, but they can't because we've already kind of classified them as not venture fundable. They're very niche. Or what they can do is take the ultimate risk, which is you build a business that makes money. You're making all the money yourself. You're paying every dollar to yourself besides your server costs. And then you say, hey, I'm going to spend this 15 grand a month on talent. I'm going to hire another engineer for five, six, seven, eight grand a month. I'm going to hire a support person for a few grand a month. And I'm going to hire maybe a marketer consultant for a few grand a month part time. And now, next thing you know, you might be able to build that business faster than you were doing it before, but you're going from making 15,000 a month to making zero a month. 
So now you have to hope that your new three-person part-time team not only gets along and does the right thing and that they don't steal from you or whatever, and that you can manage them and keep them motivated, but you have to hope that maybe within six to 12 months, they get you double your revenue. So now they get you up to 30 grand a month, which means what? Now you're just back to personally making 15 grand a month. So it becomes this fisherman's parable, right? With the fisherman who's hanging out and the executive says, you know, why can I why aren't you fishing more? And then you could, why would I do that? Well, then you could buy boats. Why would I do that? Well, then you could buy ships. Why would I do that? So then you could retire and fish on the sea. Right. Well, I'm already doing that. And I think <laughs> a lot of founders are stuck in that parable. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. So like founders who go from zero to 10, 20, 10, 15, 20 K a month. What I found was there's a huge market of buyers who are looking for that, yep. for that level now of, especially in SaaS. I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, how did you get into that, right? Like, how did you decide to buy the first app with your partner? And was that the beginning of this, like, equity fund idea? Or like, yeah, how did you get into that? When we got the first app Notify, it felt like an anomaly. It felt like we had hit the jackpot in terms of finding the, the person at the right time, the original founder. We were both literally in San Francisco that week. So we were able to meet for dinner. I mean, so many things lined up. And we were, and he was obviously just incredibly friendly. And I'm actually hanging out with him next month. I'm going to visit him in Australia. And I haven't seen him in a few years. It felt like, okay, you know, that was really great, but there's no way that could be replicated, right? You know, this was a once in a lifetime chance. We were all in San Francisco and, and this is just how things happen up there. But then as the first year or so went by, we got to know more founders. We got involved in some of the community at like MicroCon and other places. You realize there are a lot of people like him and they're all sleeper cells, right? They're not in TechCrunch. They're not on Crunchbase. They're not on AngelList. They're obviously not hiring because they're keeping the money for themselves because of this fisherman's parable paradigm we just talked about. But they exist and they're all over the place. And so when we realized that, we were able to kind of couple that confidence and that sort of case study with having done it once and kind of just started lightly doing, I guess you could call it a deal flow, right? Just we fill a company, maybe on product hunt, maybe on indie hackers, we'd reach out hey, you know, I really love what you're doing. And this was always genuine, right? We didn't ever automate this with cold email tools or something. Personal outreach. Hey, I love what you're doing. Are you open to a conversation about selling it? And a lot of people don't reply or they reply and they say no and because they're told by Paul Graham essays that you should never reply to this deaf people. Or they reply and say, yeah, and they gave some, you know, what I think is a ridiculous number. So, you know, the conversion rate on acquisitions is obviously very low too, but probably no better than websites actually. But if you do it enough, you can imagine that we've gotten a few deals done, which means we've probably talked to dozens, if not over 100 companies to get that 2 3 5% conversion rate. And there's many of these companies. Once you have, I think, the confidence is the most important ingredient of doing it once, suddenly all of these possibilities open up to you. Like You might look, listen to this podcast and say, well, I really want to buy a company. I think I could grow one, or I know a little code, I know a little marketing. If I just had a tool that did 1000 a month or something like that, and it was mine, I could do it. But I don't have X dollars to buy it. But even that, right, this thing called seller-side financing. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. Like, how do you think about financing, especially for your first deal or two? You know, we all think, I think a lot of us think about buying and selling companies as these big cash, you know, windfalls, right? I sold my company to Amazon and I sold for $100 million, And then the average spectator just listens to that and says, wow, you know, he made $100 million, Or maybe he made $80, $70 million after tax. But really, there were investors involved. So then you maybe own 20%. You got 20 million in tax. And then, you know, you realize your, your CPA told you you should parlay some of it into your next venture to save and, you know, deferred tax for that. And then Amazon wanted, you know, 25% to be in stock. And then they said there's a two-year holdout period. So you have this kind of golden handcuffs thing. And so when you put all these bits of reality together, you realize that acquisitions 
are hardly ever just a cash influx, you know, the day that your announcement goes live on TechCrunch. And not all founders know this, but part of our process has been walking through founders, uh, walking founders through the, pro, uh, the kind of scenarios where, hey, look, you're making a grand a month now. You maybe have $200 a month, let's say, in costs. And that's really low, right? We talked to a guy this morning. He's doing 800 a month. We actually made him an offer. He does $800 a month. I won't say his business name, you know, to be, keep it private. But uh, his expenses are 833 a month. So we can't do that. So you, you were really looking at like the, like the really low level revenue businesses. So- low or high. You know, again, one of our companies does. I mean, FOMO did $95,000 last month in March. And um, one of our companies did 23,000 or 22,700 last month. And we'll do 23 this month. And then one of our companies is a few hundred a month and one of them does. No, but I, I'm talking about like at the time that you acquire them. So at the time we acquire them. Yeah, sure. We're open. We're open to anywhere in like the one to 20 K a month, let's say. But you know, if, if a company does a grand a month and they have 200 expenses, which is pretty impressive, you know, that's just a server, maybe a MailChimp account. You can't afford much for 200 bucks, you know, with tools like drip and all these guys, they're now 50 bucks a month. Like, right. That's the introductory fees. I mean, even FOMO, we started 29 a month now. We used to be 12 you go, well, all right, well, in a year, you'll make $800 times 12. You'll make 9,600, but you're also going to spend hundreds of hours. So you're working for seven bucks an hour, right? I could give you a year, a year and a half, maybe even two years worth of all the money you're going to make upfront in a check or two or three, you know, a month or two or three. Then suddenly you're able to buy a company where you might pay out personally a few grand a month for some few number of months. Maybe most of that cash is hopefully coming from existing revenues. So you're kind of working for free. And then by the six, eight, 12, 14 month mark, and there's obviously that's a lot of benchmarks in there, you've paid it back in full and now every dollar's profit. So where it comes down to is, can you afford that period? It's not so much about thinking, do I need a hundred grand in my bank account to buy the business? Because you can figure out a seller side financing where they're getting paid and all of it's good. So have, have all of your deals been that, like the seller side financing, or have you done like bank financing at all for these things? We've not done anything with banks. We've tried. We've sort of tried. We've talked to S. We've filled out long applications for SBA loans. We've talked to banks. We've talked to startups that specifically do startup kind of bank funding, right? So lighter capital and some of these types of companies. And they're all sort of like Prosper or Lending Club, but for businesses. The rates are pretty high, you know, like 8, 12, 15, 18%. Kind of just shark loans. Don't really recommend doing that. You're basically, I don't know, you're going to pay so much in interest. But if you can do a business where, let's say a business is a thousand bucks a month and you can buy it for 15 grand and there's 200 month expenses. So really you're buying it for like two years profit. If you can out of pocket pay a few hundred a month, you can make those payments to that founder as long as you're willing to work for free. And assuming you're able to grow it a bit, maybe by the eight month mark, you've actually already doubled it to two grand a month and now you're, now you're done. And so that's kind of a model we've taken, but we've also bought things outright cash and we've even sold a couple small businesses you know, we sold a business for $30,000 a couple months ago, and that's in four payments of $7,500 a month. And we've done three payments so far. They've been on time. Everything's groovy. And their offer was actually $20,000 up front or $30,000 over four payments. And so that's the same kind of thing we'll do. We'll offer a significantly lower amount in terms of the percentage difference as an upfront payment. And people who don't care too much, they say, yeah, sure, I'll just rather take more money over time. So if you really focus on the smaller deals at first, you stack up a few of those, you get some ROI, and then you can get into the, the higher deals and still do it all without, in seller financing. I mean, it's, it's really... So there was a previous episode of this podcast a couple months back with JD Grafham, who's been... We talked all about this kind of stuff. He's been really successful with this 
sort of model. So if you're listening to this, you're interested, you should definitely check that one out as well. Um, what kind of criteria are you looking for in a business to buy? Like, are there certain checks, like check marks that you're looking to hit for you to consider buying it? I really like when something was the first to market because I think that means the founder was really onto something and they had a vision and they weren't just a me too clone copycat competitor. Those types of founders just in the archetypal sense, I think are the worst people in technology, you know, who just sees that something is working elsewhere and they think that they have this like audacity to say, well, I can do it better. They rarely actually do it better. <laughs> the first to market, you know, or the first couple companies, let's say to market to be a little more generous, usually do it best, right? Competitor number 30 who says, oh, I'm going to do it better. They don't actually mean that. They just mean I'm going to do it cheaper. And when you do something cheaper, you never do it better. Rarely, you know, there's like Walmart. That's one example. Cheaper is better, right? Amazon, one example. Cheaper is better. Those are the, as Nassim Taleb says, the exceptions that confirm the rule, right? So most people, they compete. They just mark down the price. They offer a subpar product. They capture customers who are less sophisticated, which is kind of okay <laughs> for the bigger companies who are more serious, you know, to not have to deal with those clientele. And I really don't like those kinds of companies if it looks like they're the tenth to do something. But the companies we've bought, you know, we bought this slime company. It's basically toys for kids. You know, they were the first to do it. We bought an app called CrossSell on Shopify. It shows related products. They were the first to do it. And they call themselves CrossSell. So they have a really incredible cross-sell, you know, app store link on the Shopify app store. They were the first to do it. FOMO, previously called Notify, first to do it. We just bought a, a flower SaaS invoice generator company for florists and event planners. They were the first to do it, launched in 2013. So when that is present, that criteria... I already think, well, this founder's onto something. And the reason why this could be a really symbiotic relationship for us to kind of work together and take the business over from them is that they just hit a growth plateau, right? They had the vision, they had the idea, they might've had some great features, maybe the design's not you know, as modern, et cetera. All that can be fixed very easily with HTML and CSS. What can't be fixed is being first. What can't be fixed is customer and market perception. What can't be easily fixed is you know, ranking on Google because Google trusts you because you were the first to show up in 2013 search results. So that's something we look for. And then we look for even minutia or small things like the tech stack. You know, we have a team, a kind of a centralized team and ad hoc teams that mostly do Rails, Ruby Rails, JavaScript frameworks, a little bit of Angular, a little bit of PHP, but we don't want to buy anything that's not in one of those languages. And that's heartbreaking because we talk to a lot of companies that everything's great, but it's built in Go or it's built in Java or something. But we just can't do it because there's no... It would cost too much to pick it up. Yeah, we'd have to rebuild it. And then suddenly it's like, why don't we just build it on our own? You know, so those are some of the things that we look for. And so far we've stuck to it, I think. But generally, you know, SaaS also, B2B also. A little more rational players, B2B than B2C. SaaS obviously helps you get compound growth, um, predictable revenue. And then what is, what is fork equity? How does that factor into this? Fork equity is sort of an evolution of NK because um, with fork equity, and this is also why I think it's really great to start with, let's say, even a $500, $300 a month business, you know, buy it for $2,000 on flippa.com, right? Some niche WordPress blog that has music lyrics. I don't know, something like that. Gets a 50,000 hits a month. Buy one of those just to get your, wrap your head around the process. Make a case study, which is really just a PDF or a blog post announcement. And, you know, what you've done to improve it, maybe some screenshots of Google Analytics. Then you can do what we've done with Fork, which is curated a pool of investors, basically angel investors. These are not people day-to-day -day involved in technology necessarily. They're brick-and-mortar building owners. They're just sort of angels. They're sort of retired folks. 
And they're interested in getting in tech, but they wouldn't do it necessarily on their own, right? They don't code, they don't want to code, they don't want to hire designers, they don't want to deal with the industry. We're able to let them live vicariously through us, and now we're able to actually acquire businesses with far less cash out of pocket personally. So now we could actually buy a company, let's say for a million bucks, with a similar out-of-pocket expense as if we bought a company a year ago for 300000 bucks. I mean, how does it work logistically? Like, I, obviously, I get, you know, like, if you go to forkequity.com right now, it's, it's super simple. It, Very bare. <laughs> get the logo, apply to invest. Here's a form. How much money do you want to give us? Uh, so what, what happens after somebody fills out that form? And how do you even find those people? So we've done no outreach, really. We have around, let's say, two dozen people that we've vetted that are in our investor pool. If the average person even did 10 to 30 grand a deal, we have enough to do, let's say, a million dollar deal at any given moment. So we're kind of we're kind of not motivated or incentivized to find more investors because the more you have, the more questions they have, you know, they want to know about your deal flow, that kind of thing. But logistically, the way it works, it's quite different from any of these other micro PE firms. And the way it works is this. Let's say we buy a company or we find a company, we identify a company we want to buy, we prepare one sheeters. These are similar, you know, deal flow, pipeline kind of preparation. We share with our investor pool. And what we let them know, though, we let, what we let them know, though, excuse me, is that we're going to acquire the company and we're going to then resell equity. So essentially, we're going to buy it outright. Fork Equity buys the company 100%. Fork Equity then does its own fundraise, as if we were a company from scratch raising from venture capitalists, right? And Fork Equity may sell 10 or 20 or 30 or up to even 50% of the company at a set valuation. That capital is then infused into accelerating the product roadmap, redesigning, growing the business, et cetera. And then on a monthly basis, we pay dividends. But for the first quarter, uh, and those dividends are commensurate with your equity. So let's say we bought a company and we valued it at $100,000 and we're selling up to 50% of the company. So one of our fork investors can optionally, and this is by you know, first come first serve basis for now anyway, they could reply and say, look, I'm in for 10% for five grand. And um, they can wire us the five grand to the fork account. They'll get 10% equity. That entitles them to obviously influence and any ideas they may have. Every month, they'll get 5% of the net earnings as a dividend wired back to them. And then obviously, if and when we sell the company, they'll get their 5 or their 10% of that exit as well, you know, non-diluted. And so uh, on, the, on the partner side, on our end, we don't take any operating salaries, right? So I code, I do marketing, I do very bad design and wireframing product tech, et cetera. I don't get any fees for that, right? So I am an equity holder as well. I might personally own 20% of a company that Fork buys. So I get 20% of the monthly distributions, but I'm in charge or I'm the responsible person for the development and the marketing and the growth and the product newsletters and the accounting and that kind of thing. And so essentially Fork gets some bit of an operational equity. Fork also buys into the companies and then some arbitrary, not arbitrary, but different per deal amount of equity we sell to these investors. The first quarter though, the, the main kind of kicker here, I guess, for the first quarter of any given business, all of that capital that we raised goes into the business. There's no dividends. And the idea there is we want to communicate to existing customers because these are real businesses, right? These aren't just ideas. They have already customers. They already have people depending on them and paying them. We want to communicate to them, hey, there's sort of new management, right? Imagine the, the sign over a restaurant that was always kind of okay, but never amazing. And it says new management. You say, okay, great. I'll give them a try. We want to say there's new management. 
Yeah. I mean, customers get the blog posts that say, Hey, that this company that I've been using for years has just been sold. Great. It's probably going to you know, change a lot. Exactly. And that's what we've done the last three deals. So the slime deal, the cross-selling app deal and the lava, the flower deal after about a month, six weeks, we had redesigned everything, relaunched it as blah, 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 V 2.0, doubled the pricing in some cases <laughs> or added new products in some cases, you know, different per is prescriptive. Right. And that lets the customers know, Hey, we're back. And we're listening and we're going to accelerate the product roadmap and give you the things you want. And then they're very happy and then they start sharing. And then we're, and then it's kind of off to the races from there with the new growth campaign. I mean, I got to ask you, I'm sure people listening to this right now, like, I and mean, we haven't even really talked about FOMO, like your main <laughs> business right now. You know, how do you manage all these different projects? And obviously you have teams and whatnot, and, and you're, you're involved to varying degrees on things, but like, even just the logistics of, of fork, like, you know, managing paying out dividends and deal flow. And uh, I've been through an acquisition process. Like I know how insanely draining hours wise that is on both the buyer and seller side. So like, how do you do that and run FOMO and code your own stuff and blog and, and music? Like how, how are you managing all this stuff? Short answer, coffee, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my daily routine, I wake up around 8, 10, and I go to bed between midnight and 4 a.m. You know, last night, I did some stuff for the Flower app from about 8 p.m. until 2 a.m. Um, I refused to go to bed just immediately after working, so then I watched, like, a show, and I went to bed around 3, and today I got up at 8. And so that's most days of the week, I mean, including the weekends, which isn't great, but it's not forever either. So, you know, over the last few months, my fiance, she's been doing more and more of the deal flow and we've been able to better distribute our tasks where she's subscribed to, let's say, a dozen newsletters of, of brokerages and indie hackers and growth hackers. And anytime, any place that people congregate online to talk about products and, and side apps and recurring revenue bootstrapped ideas and what tech stack to use, all these conversations we're monitoring, mostly she is monitoring, and then we're reaching out and we built a deal flow tracker, sort of like our own CRM. So we try to be methodical about it. And then of course we have templates for LOIs. We have templates for asset purchase agreements. So we try to keep it really simple, really quick. Generally, when we've gotten in touch with the company and they've responded in kind and said, yeah, you know, we're open to it. Here's maybe a couple of our numbers. We usually make an offer within like 48 hours. We just move really, really quickly because I know that, you know, a lot of acquisition processes can take a long time and that's really draining. And what better way to start to differentiate ourselves when we reach out to these companies? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge benefit. They're like, yeah, if we, if we can close in 30 days or less, like that's an incentive, you know? Yep. Awesome. So, I mean, you know, real quick before we wrap up, I know we're kind of running out of time here. So you're doing all that stuff. What about FOMO? Like what's going on with FOMO? That seems to be like the most significant business that you're running today. I mean, is that right? Definitely. And yeah, it's kind of funny we didn't chat about it. I mean, I'm excited about <laughs> all the stuff I work on or I wouldn't do it. And I've, I've lost several friends because I, they were not those things, types of things that I was excited about. So I got them out of my life. And now I'm trying to do that with more and more items, whether it's something like laundry. I really don't like doing laundry. How do I get it in my life? Or something like uh, a book I'm halfway through and let me just accept this on cost and stop reading it because I want it out of my life. So I'm very excited about these three, four things we're working on. But FOMO is, is what I'm most excited about. In particular, we just launched an ad network uh, a few weeks ago. And it's called FOMO Publishers. And um, essentially what we're doing is it's, it's a new ad medium. It's a new ad point of view. It's a new ad billing model. There's a few things that are differentiating about it. But at the most critical point of it all, we're creating ads with live customer data merged into them, which has not really been done. Yeah. So, I mean, my, well, first of all, I mean, my understanding of just the core FOMO 
product is. It's kind of like that social proof thing where you're on a website, you're on, maybe it's like an e-commerce or whatever. And, and you see the little pop-up on the bottom corner, like, Hey, so-and-so just bought this. So-and-so just bought it. So-and-so just subscribed. And, and like, it's, yes. you know, it pops up. And so that, that's the core of FOMO. So what is the new, how are you spinning that into the new platform? Definitely. So what we learned was that, look, you know, social proof has been around long before we have, right? Corner stores and restaurants have known this since the beginning. Restaurants grow exclusively through social proof, right? You open up, you put an interesting sign or logo outside, people come to try you out because they are the early adopters or innovators. But ultimately, you reach that early and late majority and that recurring audience by those early adopters and innovators sharing you by them enjoying your food and your service and saying, yeah, that was good. I'll go back or I'll tell my friends. So restaurants grow exclusively through social proof, but websites kind of brush it aside, you know, and websites just say, well, let me, I don't know, optimize my ad clicks this week. They don't even think about, you know, they might pay for some off the shelf referral program, you know, so that a, a special link is in your user profile, but otherwise they don't really think about it. And our point of view is that businesses online could actually rely a lot more than they currently do on social proof to grow their audience because you know, word of mouth and referral marketing is the highest converting channel. And, you know, now with Facebook and Google and all these platforms getting so saturated, cost per click, cost per impression has gone up so much, customer acquisition costs are skyrocketing. You've got to figure out cheaper channels. But the, the challenge with social proof has always been that it's not very scalable. You, know, you, can, you can only hope that someone writes you a positive review on Yelp. You can only cross your fingers and hope that they tell a friend. And people have tried incentive programs and Dropbox is, has probably the most famous one, but that's why those are considered these amazing exceptions because they're not turnkey. Not everyone can just do a give and get $5, give and get a free account and have it work. Dropbox, Airbnb, a couple companies have done okay and that's about it. And so how, where, where does that leave the rest of us? And so what we think is that by removing that component of work, of effort from your customers to share you and talk about you and sort of quasi endorse you, we can actually leverage social proof and, and sort of automate it and streamline it. So that's what FOMO does, like you said, our core product, we show recent purchases, customer behaviors, subscriptions, et cetera, on your website. That increases your conversions. We give you a dashboard that proves that it increases conversions uh, and all of that. What we realized was that if we zoom out a little bit, it's the same concept. Why, why should I just show on your baby onesie e-commerce store that John just bought a onesie for his son when um, that same information that some guy named John in Connecticut bought a onesie for his son would be relevant to a mom on a mommy blogger in California. It's still the same relevant information. She wants to know what other people or parents like her are doing. What are they buying? Who do they trust? And so Fulma Publishers basically says, let's extract this technology, these notifications that we show on websites and put them on other websites that have relevant audiences. So it's mainly for like the bloggers who are maybe like affiliate promoters of products. So like when they're posting like a review about some product on Amazon that they're an affiliate for or Shopify or whatever, then along with their actual review of it, they could actually show real-time purchases on their site from, from the other site, basically. That's one use case. So we have some people doing that now. Um, Kettle and Fire, which is Justin's business, very successful bone broth company. They're in all the Whole Foods and lots of different stores. They also sell online. They're using FOMO on their website, but they have a lot of affiliates they work with who will routinely post about Kettle and Fire, sort of quasi-promoted posts. And these posts, you know, it's all about traffic times conversion equals e-commerce growth. And so they can now juice those posts with FOMO notifications off-site, off-platform for Kettle and Fire, but driving traffic back to Kettle and Fire. So that was the nugget or, or the bit of truth. We thought, okay, this is interesting, but really the bigger vision here is 
let's say you're on a TechCrunch article reading a, a press release about a new error analytics tool that competes with Airbrake or something. Well, now we can go to Airbrake and other error analytics tools or even the one that was written about, and we can actually show live signups and free trial notifications on that TechCrunch article. So it might say, hey, you know, do you need an error analytics solution? You know, consider um, what CTO at Slack just got, you know, five minutes ago. So now suddenly we've built ads that have dynamic data in them. And currently, you know, ads are just mostly lies. <laughs> Most ads are just like, we're the number one this, we're the best that, most powerful whatever. Yeah, this is actually showing real data in real time. Yeah, it's like nobody cares what you say about you. People care what other people say about you. And so, yeah, so we're now able to say, here's what, you know, forget our opinion of ourselves. Obviously, it's wonderful. Let's show you what customers are actually doing with our products and services. And so, yeah, that's what formal publishers' advertisements are, are doing. We pre-sold several thousand clicks last month. Um, when we launched it, uh, we had an immediately great response. We had to turn that off. And now we're onboarding a bunch of publishers and we've onboarded a couple more folks on the business team to scale that on the marketplace side. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah, you know, Ryan, it's been, uh, it's been, you know, really fascinating just seeing all these different, you know, projects that you're involved with and just the growth in such a short period of time, just overall, just really exciting to watch. So uh, I'm sure me and, and uh, a lot of people listening to this will be tuning in. We're going to get all your all your numerous websites linked up in the show notes here. You know, of course, RyanCCulp.com is your, your blog. That's where I first kind of stumbled across your awesome post on learning to code. We'll get that linked up. Your mk.xyz holdings. And of course, FOMO at, at usefomo.com. We'll get these things all linked up. So yeah, Ryan, anywhere else people can kind of uh, connect with you? Twitter, troll me. Awesome. Yeah, at Ryan C. Culp. Sweet. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Brian. All right. Now, before we wrap up, let me ask you, what'd you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one.